Welcome to Politics Done Differently, a no-frills political podcast for the everyday voter, aiming to engage Australians in the political agenda. Hosted by Katarina Sullivan, businesswoman, award-winning sustainability expert, and political junkie. This episode of Politics Done Differently is brought to you by Strategic Sustainability Consultants, an Australian-based consultancy working with businesses, governments, and not-for-profits to assist them in becoming economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable. Welcome to another episode of Politics Done Differently. We are in Parliament House and we're in a special part of Parliament House today. We're in the presidential suite. Uh, with me, I have Senator Scott Ryan. Senator, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. And first and foremost, you are a senator for Victoria. I am. And a member of the coalition. Yes. Um, but you are also the president of the Senate, which is a very prestigious position. Uh, means that you're the big boss of the chamber. I wouldn't assert that. <laughs> I, I coordinate the chamber is a better way to do it sometimes. Yeah. Um, and what sort of led you into being elected president of the chamber? Um, well, the circumstances in which I got elected were a little bit different. I mean, you're always nominated by your party. Mm -hmm. uh, I was grateful to have the support of my um, Liberal Party parliamentary colleagues to be their nominee. Um, people might remember that uh, back in 2017, uh, we had the Section 44 issues that resulted in quite a number of by-elections in the House of Representatives um, and vacancies in the Senate because people had inadvertently often held what the High Court determined was to be a, a breach of Section 44. One of those was my predecessor, the President, Stephen Parry. Uh, and so the position unexpectedly became vacant when I was a minister. I was Special Minister of State. Uh, and I resigned from that to contest the, the ballot for the presidency. Yep. and won it on in November 2017. So it was all a bit unexpected. Yep. And you had to also stop your committee work as well, I understand. So in terms of what we call the public committees, the mm -hmm. committees that are having estimates hearings, the committees that run inquiries into legislation or references from the Senate, uh, the President doesn't sit on those committees. You do sit on a few of the management committees of Parliament, uh, but not the public committees that undertake public inquiries and reviews of budgets, estimates and legislation. Sure. And with your position as president, how do you still advocate for what you want to see for your constituents in the state of Victoria? So the position of president is different from the Speaker of the House in a number of ways, um, not just in the operation of the chamber, which I'll mention in a second, um, but in the House of Representatives, the Speaker only has a casting vote if there is a tie in the chamber in a vote. And there's a whole series of parliamentary precedents about how the Speaker exercises that. Um, I think one of them, for example, is to always vote to continue debate if there was a tied vote to end debate and bring a vote on. Um, the difference in the Senate is the President doesn't have a casting vote, but I have a vote on everything. Yeah. So the, the rationale for that, of course, is that the, the Senate is comprised of equal numbers of senators from each of the states. And so therefore, if the President of the Senate didn't have a vote, effectively you would be potentially depriving a state of a vote. If you had a vote and a casting vote, you might be giving them an extra one. Mm. So for that reason, I vote on everything. Um, unlike the Speaker, I believe, um, I can participate in debate in the Senate. It's not a, uh, something I've often done. It's not something that is often done these days. It was done more regularly in the past, uh, as in decades ago. But for example, when we had the free vote on a euthanasia-related bill, um, 
I actually did speak from the chair explaining my position as to why I was going to cast a vote that way. Mm -hmm. So you do still have a role um, as a representative, in my case, of the people of Victoria, uh, but you use a bit of discretion around it, obviously, because you do want to preserve the dignity of the chair mm -hmm. uh, and your ability to um, be seen as impartial in applying the standing orders of the Senate to the operation of the chamber. Yeah. And something that's quite important to the voters is that there is a harmonious debate. I use that term as people trying to get along and trying to actually come about with an outcome for the country. Um, I've seen videos of you calling out to your colleagues saying that you expect that from them in the Senate. How do you find trying to instill order in the chamber? I think that, and I'll speak about the Senate here, the Senate, remember, is half the size of the House of Representatives, which is a big difference. It's 76 members versus 151. Uh, the Senate is also comprised of what I would describe as a wider diversity of, of views because of the electoral system used. You have a lot more minor parties, independents and, and crossbenchers in the Senate. And that's a product of, an intentional product of the electoral system, which I've spoken about else, elsewhere. Um, I think people expect debate to be vigorous mm -hmm. as well as, um, well, you know, decent. Um, and occasionally, um, I think like in most things, it can get a bit out of hand. But at the same time, I don't think people want politicians to be shy about putting the views that they're elected to represent. People feel strongly about some things. Mm -hmm. People in politics tend to feel even more strongly. They've, they've put their name on a ballot paper and stood for election on a platform. But I think in, in general terms, I find the Senate a, a very uh, decent place where people behave. Yeah. And you're quite interested, I hear, in history, uh, especially Australian history and Australian political history. What? It's a common thing in this building, people <laughs> interested in political and economic history and public policy and related, related <laughs> subjects. Um, what's your favourite aspect of Australia's history? Is there something that you think is sort of left out in the storytelling of our nation in the curriculum or in other I, aspects of life? I think we could be stronger on talking about the successes um, of the formation of the Commonwealth. And by that I mean the creation of our federal constitution, uh, the fact that... Um, while it was by no means perfect, it was one of the 19th century's world's most democratic exercises. Um, unlike the US, for example, um, our people voted in a referendum. In one state, women were already allowed to vote in South Australia, and in a number of well, colonies as they were then, Indigenous people weren't prohibited from voting. It was actually an act of the Commonwealth Parliament that prohibited Indigenous people from voting in 1902, ironically in the same bill that gave it to women nationally. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm a big believer in telling our history warts and all, but I think we underdo the real success story of um, popularly elected conventions, drafting a constitution, going back to the electorate on multiple occasions in many cases, seeking public consent for it, and then establishing a, a, a body that was, by the standards of its time, highly democratic, albeit obviously doing things that we now know were not something we would approve of, such as stripping some people of the right to vote. Uh, I think that federation story is something that we could probably tell a little bit more. Yeah. You mentioned um, Indigenous Australians just now. When you leave Parliament House, you go back to your role essentially as Senator for Victoria. How do you engage with Indigenous communities, especially in light of the Close the Gap report? I honestly spend most of my time 
actually in my role as president, one of the you know the 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 consequences of having this role is that you spend a lot of time performing official duties, uh, helping the speaker, or sorry, working with the speaker in managing managing parliament. It is a, a fairly all-encompassing job, a bit similar to when I was um, a minister. Um, so what, one of the things you do as a senator, and ironically it's one of the things I miss a bit being in this role, is that the Senate committee system is an incredibly effective way to engage with Australians um, that you wouldn't otherwise come across. And, and they can be um, people passionate about a particular issue, people from a particular area that you just might not be familiar with. I mean, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne. I'm very conscious that I've been very fortunate. Um, and I don't have the lived experience of living in regional Australia. I don't have the lived experience um, of Indigenous Australians, a whole range of other community groups. So it is one of the things I, I do miss and one of the mm -hmm. things I think that is the strongest about our Senate, which is that committee system giving all senators the opportunity to engage with people with different life experiences, different perspectives, different priorities. Do you think sometimes the media underplays the role of the Senate in our democratic system? Well, one of the things I try and avoid doing is to sort of judge the media, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Um, I think uh, the media has a critical role in any liberal democracy. Prioritising information because the amount of information that goes around this building, you know, so that one of the roles of the media is to distill that into a newspaper or a news bulletin or now, you know, um, various websites and other news sources. Um, so I don't judge the media in that sense. I think, you know, most days, most people when they come to Parliament House, as I did when I was younger, would queue up to see the House of Representatives at question time. Mm -hmm. It's a high profile event. It's got the faces that people are particularly familiar with, the Prime Minister, the Leader of the Opposition. Um, but, you know, a few times a year when it comes down to the crunch point of legislation where the Senate's role becomes um, critical to determining whether legislation passes through a Parliament or not, because, mm -hmm. you know, overwhelmingly the government will always get its legislation through the House of Representatives by definition, um, the Senate gets attention then, and I think it gets attention for the right reasons, uh, because it is meant to be a place for... Leg legislation to be negotiated. Mm -hmm. You said before that you had quite a um, good upbringing in the suburbs of Melbourne. What was it that led you into a political life? Well, when I say I was fortunate, I had a, a I'd say, a pretty standard, you know, um, upbringing, a stable family, good mm -hmm. opportunities at schools, the opportunity to go to university. Um, I, look, I always blame newspapers. I, I actually started reading newspapers. It was the Melbourne Herald for me at a very, very young age when I was at primary school. And I just got very interested um, in uh, what you'd now call public policy and, and public interest matters. Yeah. And you had a career before this doing a variety of jobs, including working in the public service and working in different politicians' offices. What lessons did you learn from that that helped you in your role now as Senator and as President of the Chamber? Well, I worked in politics. It was a very brief period in the public service, to be honest. Um, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. I worked in state government, state opposition. I worked briefly in the federal government. Um, I, it's hard to distill any particular things that you learn. The things you learn in workplaces in particular, I think, are that are important in politics are the ability to understand your perspective is not the only valid one. You know, that can be someone from marketing debating someone from the legal department in a company. Um, in politics, it could be someone with a different life experience or background or priorities, um, and you debating with them. 
Um, it's the ability to effectively find common ground and work together towards a common goal and understand that you know, 80% of something, even if you don't get your own way on everything, is still better than 0% and still arguing about you know, what, what you want to do. Yeah, and that is an important lesson in the Senate because, as you said before, there is such a wide range of political yeah. views, much broader than, say, the lower house. Well, I think the lower house does have very broad views. It's just that the, the, they tend to be expressed in the two major parties. Mm -hmm. The electoral system in the upper house means that we get different parties elected, as well as independents, like we've had Jackie Lambie, before her Brian Harradine. Uh, we've got the Centre Alliance Party, which is really South Australian. Mm -hmm. And you have One Nation, which is now just has two senators out of Queensland, as well as the National um, Liberal National Coalition and the Labor Party. I think there are as many... Um, the views are almost as diverse in, in the House of Representatives. It's just they tend to be expressed differently because they tend to be overwhelmingly in two major party blocks. Yeah. In the Senate, they're represented in different parties. So I think part of that expression is more public. What do you see as the biggest challenges that are facing Australia and Australians today? Oh, well, that's a particularly open-ended <laughs> question we could go on for days. Um, I suppose with the, with the proviso that this is my perspective, you know, mm -hmm. so someone with different political philosophy may have a different one. And I, I, so I'm not saying this is the only perspective out there. Um, several of the things that drive me in politics are trying to ensure opportunity is spread as widely throughout Australia. I, I do not want a situation where someone um, is denied opportunity. There'll always be variations in level of opportunity uh, because of a situation outside their control. Um, you know, whether it be through illness, whether it be through family upbringing, uh, whether it be through, um, you know, the location where they live. We know, for example, that there are different health outcomes across our cities and across regions and cities. Um, we know that uh, different where you live can have an impact on your educational opportunity. I accept there'll always be variations in it, but I want to make sure that people have the opportunities that I've had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mum was a teacher, my dad was a mechanic. Um, I had a very fortunate upbringing, um, good schools, an opportunity to go to Melbourne Uni, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I want to ensure that future generations have similar opportunities. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very broad brush because opportunity means different things to different people. For some people, it means a job. I'm conscious that there are other people in the Senate who would also talk about, well, they value the lived environment or the natural environment, and, and they can define opportunity that way too. And part of the challenge of politics is to actually find a way to accommodate these different views. We have elections to decide who's in government, um, but in practice, one of the things the Senate does is it decides what legislative agenda of that government can be enacted. And what do you think is one of the barriers for people engaging in some of these issues? Because political engagement, I would argue, is somewhat lower than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. How can we encourage more people to become more involved in debate? I wouldn't necessarily accept that presumption. Mm -hmm. and, and by this, I define political engagement more broadly. Yeah. Um, I think there's definitely lower involvement in political parties. Mm -hmm. But I've had it put to me, and this is one of the reasons I reflect upon it this way, is that some people say, well, I'm involved in a single issue group, whether it be a group for a tax policy or an environmental policy or um, you know, a human rights movement. Um, they may not share my views, but they mm -hmm. say, well, I'm involved in politics because I'm trying to get the parliament to do it. I'm just not doing it through a political party. Sure. Now, I think one of the 
one of the things our system does rely on is however strong political parties. And so coming to your point, how do we get more people involved in political parties? Well, you know, we tried to do that in my home state in Victoria. We changed our rules to give mm -hmm. every party member a, a right to pre-select their House of Representatives candidate. Um, but that's a challenge right around the world with political parties I've seen, at mm -hmm. least the countries that I'm familiar with. Um, how do you encourage people to become members? Uh, and I think one of the strengths of political parties is that they encourage people to have the notion of, of compromise and trade-off. So mm -hmm. within the Liberal Party, there are broad views on a whole range of issues. I know I can't get my way on everything. If I want to do more of A, it might be I have to give way on B. Um, one of the challenges, I think, for politics in the modern era is with a lot of single-issue movements, we're losing that element of compromise. Sure. Uh, and I think that is particularly important because in the end, um, government is about limited resources being allocated to various priorities and there must be that sort of prioritisation. Yeah. Do you think we're also losing a little bit of the understanding of intersectionality of politics, knowing that the economy, the society and the environment are all, you've got to work on policy of all of them together and understand they all work in harmony? Well, that's not a word I generally use, to mm -hmm. be honest, um, because it's used in other contexts. I think there are those in politics who, who believe in a more limited role for the state or for government. I'm, I'm probably one of those. So... Uh, there'll be people in the Senate or the House of Reps, maybe even on my own side, who will say that, you know, the government should be working on a more holistic approach, where someone like me might say, I'm a bit concerned about government getting into that space. Mm -hmm. And uh, to use an example, a sugar tax. I know people, I disagree with them, but they are well-meaning. I'm not going to say they're not well-meaning. They say we have to introduce things, something like a sugar tax, because people are having too much sugar. It's bad for their health. It costs the health system. Yep. My perspective on that is, well... Is that really a role for politicians to be penalising people for undertaking something that is relatively free choice and relatively harmless yeah. um, to other people? So part of that is, I think, a, a, a genuine disagreement and one of the reasons we have elections, after yeah. all, because people have a different view of what the role of government should be. Yeah. Well, that goes very much back to the lowercase l liberal values of the Liberal Party and having individual choice and freedom. Um, so you're sort of going back to the roots of the party. <laughs> well, it, look, I'm just going, I'm trying to explain the Liberal Party's always had various strains of thought as the Labor Party has. Um, that's my perspective that, you know, sort of described myself as very liberal in approach to things economically and socially. Yeah. Do you have a favourite moment of your political career so far of something that um, you've campaigned for or that's been passed um, either before or since you've been appointed president? That's a very hard decision. Let me reflect <laughs> on that and try and have an answer for you by the end. I'm not, I'm not someone that, 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 has, that, that would generally have favourite moments like mm -hmm. that. I, I, I tend to reflect upon, oh, I've done that, now what's next? Um, I'll have to reflect on that. Yeah. And as in your role as president, do you have the capacity to campaign for issues for the state of Victoria. When you're in the ministry, you can't. You're bound mm -hmm. by cabinet solidarity as a principle. Uh, and since we've been in government since 2013, I've been in the ministry or in this role. Um, when you're in opposition or you're on the government backbench, you do have that capacity. What you will find, I think, on both sides, um, mm -hmm. government and opposition, is that uh, a lot of campaigning for a particular project, interest or priority you have, uh, will often be done inside party 
fora so that that can be prioritised as a party policy. For Victoria, it might mean, say, infrastructure funding, and I might go and speak to the minister responsible to try and raise the profile of projects in Victoria. Um, and that is one of the things I, I think, you know, that isn't seen publicly, but that is a very big driver of how parties come to policy, the, the internal work that members and senators do inside their own parties. Yeah. How do you think we could bring more attention to that, or is that just something that's always going to be sort of behind closed doors? I think those who are actively involved in policy know it. So I meet people up here in this room, from everything from you know, religious freedom to infrastructure funding to environmental matters um, to you know, tax policy. Mm -hmm. um, and I have found that those who are involved, whether they be in larger party movements or in a, uh, an NGO, for example, or a single issue movement concerned about a particular priority, I've found they're very aware of it mm -hmm. and that... that, and, and that you know, a lot of people come to Canberra to speak to groups of MPs because it's easier to speak to all of us in one place in many yes, ways. Yeah. Um, knowing that that's how the party process is developed to develop party policy. Mm -hmm. What do you think constituents could do to engage more in the political discourse and be more aware of the information that's coming out of this building? Well, I don't want to... I'm very, just be very... I'm careful to use things that imply I don't think there are a high enough level and I, I don't say that I, mm -hmm. if people want to get more engaged there's mm -hmm. always opportunities to get more engaged you know speak to your MP um, make contact with them most MPs will make an effort to get back to everyone that contacts them mm -hmm. occasionally you know with emails these days they can get swamped don't use one of the campaign websites that you plug your name in and it sends an automatic email to, every, to the, your MP and 12 senators the, the volume of those means they, they are very hard to respond to particularly um, when you're a senator from a larger state, um, but your lower house member often will, um, get involved in a group that is passionate about the issue you are. Whether, again, it could be any one of the groups. There, One of the things I've found, and it is, I think, one of the things that challenges political parties at the moment, is that there are more and more groups in society that get involved in particular policy issues. I mean, if you go back nearly a century, you know, a lot of people's lives were defined by where they were born, where they worked, the motor car wasn't, wasn't really widespread until the 50s. Um, transport was harder. So community was often defined geographically mm -hmm. with overlays of gender, class, religion, you know, and, and, and other notions. Mm -hmm. Now you have a situation where anyone in Australia who's interested in a particular health issue can, you know, can make contact with MPs and organise via electronic means. That, that really wasn't even possible 20 years ago. Yeah. And so I have found, since I briefly worked in the building in the 90s and I came here for the first time as an MP in 2008, that there are more and more of those opportunities. So if someone's passionate about an issue, I think a quick you know, web search will actually give them a place where they might either establish a group with people with a common interest or find a group with a common interest. And in my experience, MPs with a passion in that area will actually engage with those groups because... You know, the job of politics is really speaking to people, dealing, yeah. communicating with people, listening to their priorities, trying to meet them and trying to persuade them to support yours. Yeah. And so I think those opportunities are bigger than they have been. If people want to get involved that's a good, or more involved, that's a good first step. Yeah. The other option is, of course, to join a political party. And every time I go to a school or speak to a, a group of young people... I encourage them to join a political party if they're interested in politics. I mean, joining and getting involved is um, 
at least as important as becoming a liberal. But no, in a more serious <laughs> note, I would prefer people to get involved because it strengthens our democracy. Yes, yeah. So sign up the Liberal Party if possible, but just sign oh, up. Well, obviously, yeah, <laughs> no, obviously, that's my that, 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 that's what I did. Um, but, you know, I really like the idea of people getting involved. Mm -hmm. The more people that are involved uh, and understand how we prioritise limited resources, which is effectively what a large amount of government work is, um, then the stronger our democracy is. You would receive a lot of emails in your role as a senator. What tends to be some of the big topics that constituents email you about? Um, look, it's very topical. Mm -hmm. So if there's a bill going through Parliament on a particular issue, I'll get a lot. Mm -hmm. If I just discount what I'll call the campaign emails, sure. um, I don't think they're a very effective um, tool um, to hit particularly senators um, because if you were in a seat in Melbourne let's say it was Goldstein or Higgins a liberal seat mm. um, there are some websites that you put your name in and, and from what I gather it will send an email to your local member but then all 12 senators mm. and then that means I'm getting emails from everyone doing that for all 38 seats in Victoria yes. so you can get swamped pretty easily and they're all the same yeah. I, I, I don't think they're hugely effective but if we're develop if, if there's a bill before Parliament on a particularly contentious issue, mm -hmm. that is what you often get some emails about. Yeah. Yeah. So it it, it sort of does depend on what the um, agenda before the Parliament is, what's attracting public attention, mm -hmm. what's in the news. Um, some groups are very good at getting out to their members to actually say we need you to make contact with MPs, and you know you do notice that. Um, so there's no sort of theme to it. It, it it's essentially depends on the topics at the time. Do you get many uh, complaints about sort of day-to-day -day issues, you know, hospital, education, things like that, or is that mostly MPs? That, that tends to go to lower house members more than senators. Yeah. Um, and senators, um, we, we, we will get them and we yeah. have the same facilities to support people. Um, the biggest issue in my experience, the biggest issues that come through what I'll call those electoral assistance issues, electorate assistance issues, tend to be related to the Department of Social Services, the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, and uh, immigration-related matters. Sure. They tend to be the volume, in yeah. my experience. And we were talking before about the huge change in technology, um, even from your time back in sort of the 90s, early 2000s to now. Um, do you use social media as a tool for engaging with your constituents? or? I generally don't a great deal. I will use Twitter for example, and Facebook to post things that I've done that mm -hmm. might be of interest, like when I'm making a speech that I think might be of interest to people who follow that. Um, it's a very easy way to get to journalists. Like in the old days, you'd actually, there's a series of boxes up here on the second floor mm -hmm. that used to have a bell. And you, when you were putting out a press release in the 90s, you'd go up and you'd, you'd put the press release in all the boxes and ring the bell. Oh, wow. um, you know, that was only decommissioned a few years ago because it was obviously overtaken by email. Yeah. But... If you've got an announcement to make, that you know something like Twitter or Facebook can be a very effective way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't use it for a lot of engagement. Um, if people make a query for me for of me, for example, on my Facebook page, we'll direct them to email um, the office. Um, partly because it's more private at that mm -hmm. time, um, and on Twitter, to be honest, it's just better not to engage sometimes. Yep. So it can be a pretty unhappy place. It's a very shouty arena. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any other processes, like you said before, with ringing the bell for press releases, are there any other processes that you're aware of that have changed over time in Parliament House with technology? Or 
you used to be delivered things, you know, um, like your Hansard greens or pinks mm. as they call them, the draft that comes off the printer sort of within an hour, maybe two of what you've said in the chamber to correct any errors, not make substantial changes, but to correct any errors. They used to be delivered to your office. Then years ago, they came on the fax machine. Now they just get emailed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, look, it's actually interesting. I mean, I suppose it's, it's been very rapid over the last 20 years. It's almost hard to think back to what it was before that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the speaker, Tony Smith, worked here for Peter Costello from mm. sort of 1990 to 2001. He'd probably be in a better place to tell yeah. some interesting stories along that regard. It's funny that you mentioned it's hard to sort of recall yeah. when it was different because even I saw something the other day on social media saying, oh, remember when we had to pay 10 cents for to send a text message? Oh, yeah. And I had completely wiped that out of my memory. That I used to be sitting there... And you'd see that it had gone one character over, so it was going to send mm. through two text messages, and you'd be sitting I there. I do furiously. remember that. And <laughs> I remember, I'm old enough to remember the days when you could only text message people on your own network, mm. where the, there were set blocks of phone numbers for Telstra, Optus, and Vodafone, yeah. and you could only text people on the same network. Um, uh, when I turned up here, I think they got to the point of having smartphones, but they definitely weren't Blackberries or, or iPhones. Mm. Uh, that's probably been the most radical... The iPhone has been the most radical change uh, because you're permanently digital mm -hmm. uh, and connected, uh, but connected in more than just text, if you know what I mean. You know, you can use the full complement of services. And, sure. Um, that, that's probably the biggest difference, that you're always online now. Do you I, find it's somewhat distracting in the chamber or are most people pretty good with their phones? Look, I'll let others judge whether they think we're distracted <laughs> or not. It's very handy. Like the day I got elected, I had to walk straight from the ch my chair to the, to the um, president's chair because mm -hmm. there was no president. And I was getting updated on what's happening next in the chamber. Mm -hmm. Like this is what you need to know about the next 10 minutes by, by text message or email. Um, now in the old days, someone would have walked in or probably had to talk to you at the chair. Mm -hmm. That made it a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, but it's also meant that people expect more immediate responses. So... I go back to, I mean, I'm 47 in May, mm -hmm. so the days before mobile phones, you would call someone and un understood that you weren't going to get a call back necessarily that day, yep. um, or someone that was urgent would chase them with a message. Now, it does seem like we expect instantaneous response, whether to a text message or a phone call. Yep. Um, so it's made everything quicker. Yes. Um, and I'm conscious that I, uh, I always try and carve out time to be more deliberative, to think more without... Um, to find some time to think when you're sure. not just instantly responding. Yeah. I've had a lot of people actually say to me that they're surprised or it takes so long to get legislation passed through the chamber. And I was trying to explain that people have to debate and everyone's opinion has to be heard and votes need to be taken. They said, well, why can't they just have already, you know, sent debates via email and have it done well, a lot quicker? We, so a few years ago... Um, there was a move to start people allowing to table speeches, mm -hmm. i.e. not speak to them, not actually speak them. And we did, the Senate generally pushed back on that and said, no, no, if you're going to have something in Hansard, you need to speak, speak it so that other people in the chamber can, necess can respond to it. Um, and that was only on one stage of a bill, the second reading stage, not the committee stage where you, you have to debate amendments sort of to and fro on the spot. So we did push back on that. Mm -hmm. I, it was before I was in this role. I was thinking an opposition backbencher mm -hmm. because most people thought, no, the, the importance of the debate, you need to hear others and be able, and have, allow others the opportunity to respond to you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that that's actually come up at one point. Yeah, um, it's sort of, 
it didn't come up as a conscious thing. It just came up that I think some people were seeking leave to table speeches to sort of save time in the Senate. Yeah. Um, we still do allow it on occasions. Mm -hmm. um, when I was on uh, parental leave at one point, I was allowed to table a speech yeah. on, on an important bill on the basis that I wasn't here, you know, yeah. for, for that reason. So it's still allowed by exception. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic yeah. that they do have the flexibility for The Senate's a, a fairly flexible place yeah. about its operations in those regards. Yeah. I'd love to ask, do you have any advice for young people who are particularly wanting to learn more about politics? Where can they go for more information? You suggested to join up to political parties and join up to single interest groups, but in terms of researching mm. the rich history of this building and our democratic system, where could they go? So depends on what they're interested in. So by mm -hmm. that I mean you might be interested in a particular in public policy, how... Mm -hmm. How, how did Australia adopt this set of policies? And, and then there are some great books in history, um, sorry, great books that go into periods of history. You know, for my era, and uh, I finished school in 1990, Paul mm -hmm. Kelly's Age, End of Certainty was a totemic book because it explained a very critical period in Australian political history, the sort of late 70s to the mid-90s, um, and how Australia went from sort of a protected, cosseted economy to a country that reduced trade barriers, looked toward Asia, um, and became a much more open, dynamic place. I, uh, I think that if you're interested in how public policy is made, how parliaments adopted the role of the media, then that is a fascinating book. Um, if you're interested in the, the history of how Australia was formed, um, then I think there's a biography of Alfred Deakin, um, The Enigmatic Mr Deakin, which was released only a few years ago, which is a fascinating um, uh, look at the early years of Australia and the years that led up to its formation through the eyes of one of its most significant players with a natural bias towards my hometown of Melbourne because he was a Victorian. Um, so it sort of depends there. And then there will be other things that if someone's interested in, like I am with a particular interest in, you know, federalism and constitutional design, mm -hmm. there'll be another, there'll be other books for that. I'm a bit biased in that I go towards books. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd say there's plenty of good writing on Australian politics. Mm -hmm. um, but it's sort of, it's hard to say if I'm interested in politics, where do I start? It, I, I would sort of try and drill down into say, asking people, what are you most interested in? To give them something that I know they'll like, and then they'll probably read on from there like I did when yes. I was young. Yeah. And you mentioned before that your sort of area of specific interest is federalism. I can um, put you to sleep and everyone <laughs> to sleep for days talking about that. At least you're aware of it. That's yeah. what I always get told that at least I'm aware that my interest in politics can be often seen as quite boring by people. <laughs> um, what, what was the thing that sort of sparked your interest in that? Do you remember a specific moment or? I do remember that there was a moment at university in my first year at Melbourne university where I was in a library called the education resource center. I don't even know it's there anymore. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was opening a book on American politics because I was always fascinated by it. And I found um, some sections on the Federalist Papers, which were uh, essays written by their founding fathers, as they were, um, to argue for the adoption of the US Constitution in the state of New York. But they had become sort of the formative text um, to interpret the US Constitution. And I remember reading a particular paragraph in one of those, still today, because I remember where I was, that I found sort of encapsulated instincts I already had. And it was about the need to divide power so that no one person could become so powerful they could threaten your liberty. I, I can't remember the exact quote off the top of my head. 
Um, but that's a common theme through the Federalist Papers and, and, and the founding of the US Constitution, which makes it very different to ours, where there was no fear of government or state power in the arguments about adopting our Constitution. Um, I'd already had instincts where I was very sceptical of authority, and I didn't like the idea that um, even if elected, um, people could necessarily control the lives of others. That and reading John Stuart Mill's On Liberty the same year, I found um, sort of encapsulated instincts I already had mm -hmm. uh, and gave me an intellectual framework to explore. So I then read Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, I think it was, and other books and reflecting my interest. And then you sort of start to read things that challenge your own perspectives to try and get a more well-rounded view. Um, that was a moment for me mm -hmm. um, that when my first year of uni, but I was already politi politically very interested at that point. Yeah. Oh, sounds fascinating. You've made it sound interesting. Oh, well, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> so hopefully our listeners do go ahead and maybe pick up some of the books that you've recommended um, and also have a look into how our constitution was formed because I think that would be excellent homework for everyone to actually I don't want to give people homework. <laughs> I do. I'll do it. <laughs> that's all coming from me. We won't put you under the firing line, but... Um, I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks on for having me. the podcast and hopefully we'll get to chat to you again soon. Happy to. Cheers. Wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to Politics Done Differently. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please go back through our library for more insightful interviews. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at PD Differently. If you want to get involved in the conversation, please hashtag PD differently. We look forward to seeing you next episode.